0: Your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at ChoiceHotels.com, where travels come true.
1: Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating Pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable, size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies, so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Looking to part ways with complicated,
0: expensive, and uncertain shipping? Reliable. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. We're going a little morbid today. Yeah, uh, literally. Be quite. Uh So everyone knows what a mummy looks like. Uh, you've seen them probably in a museum. They're featured in movies. They have been popular Halloween costumes for decades. And most people know a little bit about how mummification was performed. Uh, I think most people will remember hearing about organs being removed, brains being extracted through the nose. That's usually the first thing someone will spit out if you mention mummification. That was the first thing I spit out when you mentioned mummification to oh, me. Also my husband. That was yes. the first thing he said. Oh, they pulled the out through the nose, uh, But there are a lot of other details to the process, and that full picture of what all goes on is almost never really taught in school, and it's certainly not talked about a lot because it gets into a lot of minutiae. So uh, that got me thinking about how did ancient Egyptians actually embalm their dead? And thanks in large part to Herodotus and Diodorus Siculus, we actually have some really good descriptions of what happened to the deceased. Um, But in this episode, just to set up expectations, we're not focusing on the tombs and the pyramids and like how pharaohs necessarily were laid to rest. We're talking about just embalming and mummification of, you know, the general populace of Egypt although there there are social strata levels and financial levels to it uh, and we also want to throw out a quick warning so some of this as you might guess gets a little bit graphic so if you are sensitive to semi-gory anatomy talk or you're listening with a younger history buff who might not you know necessarily be ready for this topic you might want to either skip it or give it a quick pre-screen uh, for any younger ones just to make sure you're cool with them hearing what we have to say like I said some of it's a little a little, graphic, a little yucky if you're uh, sensitive to it. The account written by Herodotus describes the whole pre-mummification process while the household is grieving over the recently deceased person. And upon the death of a distinguished man, according to Herodotus' writings, all of the women of the household would mud themselves. They would cover themselves with mud and they would walk through town beating their bare breasts as part of this show of mourning. And men would also do this same thing, also beating themselves on the chest. And there was also a girdle wearing involved. Uh, and then when this processional was over, that's when they would take the body to be mummified. If a woman had died, if she was the wife of an honorable man or was especially beautiful or well-known, her body would be held by the family for several days prior to being embalmed. And according to Herodotus, this was to protect the body from being violated by the embalmers, which was either apparently a problem or a suspected problem. Yeah, they were either very afraid uh, of necrophilia going on, or it sounds like in that writing that there is one instance of it happening, but it's still not clear whether it was a rumor or it actually took place, but it was a very real fear. Uh, And then in the case of people who were found either killed by a Nile crocodile or drowned in the river, they got a whole sort of different approach, uh, which is that their bodies were handled in the absolutely most elaborate man- manner. They could only be touched by priests of the Nile. Like, not even their relatives were allowed to touch the deceased. Uh, and these corpses were handled as though they were, quote, more sacred than the body of a man. Because they, you know, esteemed the Nile so much. If the Nile is how you died, you sort of got automatically a higher level. Now, when I was relaying this piece of information to my husband, on the way to work today he immediately began to postulate well what would happen like maybe somebody in your family died in a really nefarious way could you throw them in the nile and fake it and give them an honor a super honorable um burial as a consequence i do not know <laughs> but in a, in case any of our listeners had a similar question i just wanted to mention that i have no idea that we don't know so once the family had finished their initial grieving ritual, they would turn the body over to the embalmer. And the process of preserving the body was extremely important because Ka, which is the person's spiritual entity, would not be able to come back to a body that was decayed. Right. So as we know, without getting too deep into the the religious aspect of it, because we're focusing really on how bodies were handled. uh, You know, in Egypt, they believe that you're your soul, some form of your soul would come back to you in the afterlife. That's why they wanted to prepare everyone. And so if, if you, if your body was handled poorly, it would be a much more difficult or unlikely process for you to have a good afterlife. That's a sort of common idea in a lot of religions Mm -hmm. that, that if the body has been desecrated or destroyed in some way, that it's going to affect the afterlife of the person who died. Uh, And then once the family would take the body to um, the embalmers, much the same way that a modern mortician would go over options for various aspects of burial ceremonies with clients, the embalmer would actually show the deceased family normally three specimens of their work, and they would each be at a different quality and price level. And these were described by Herodotus as the, quote, three classes of burial, the most expensive, the medium and the most humble. And once the class of embalming was decided upon and all the details were worked out, then the embalmer would set to work. So sort of like planning a funeral today. Yeah. The body's first stop was the place of purification, and there the corpse would be washed with natron, which is a hydrous-native sodium carbonate. And next, the washed body would be taken to the, quote, House of Beauty for actual mummification. And there, the the man that was deemed the overseer of mysteries, who is usually a follower of Anubis, was assisted by a priest of Osiris in the actual mummification process. The overseer of mysteries would do this work according to the pricing structure that had been agreed upon when the family first brought the deceased in. Right. So first, we're going to run down the most involved process, which was called the most perfect process. And this involves steps that are probably familiar to people to some degree, because this is really what most people talk about. Or they hear about snippets of in history class. Brains through the nose. Yep, brains through the nose. So starting with the extraction of the brain matter through the nostrils using, according to Herodotus, it was an iron hook. Uh, and there was iron being used in Egypt at the time, but there have also been some questions about that. Uh, the residue that the hook was unable to clear away would be rinsed out, uh, with what is referred to in several, in, in the sources as drugs and presumably, That was something with a cleaning agent in it, though there are still some question marks about what the drugs were. Something that would help remove brain matter. Early on in this process, there were also two men involved who had kind of odd jobs. Yeah, I, uh, when I was doing research on this, I, I am Tracy and said, I just found the two worst jobs in ancient Egypt's history. Yeah. Uh, First was, was not quite as bad. That was the scribe. And the scribe would mark the left side of the deceased body where the incision would be made. And then a second man who was called the slitter would make the cut to open the abdominal cavity. And according to the first century uh, BCE Greek historian, Diodorus Siculus, who we mentioned earlier, the slitter would then be, he would have to take off running because he would be set upon by everyone present. And they would curse him and throw rocks at him. And this was actually a ritualized thing. Uh, this was all part of the natural Egyptian belief that anyone who would perform violence on a human body was horrible and should be hated. Uh, but somebody had to do it. So this was the Slitter's job sort of to be professionally hated and it, not exactly the best job there was because it was like, Hey, great job. Now we're going to beat you. Um, we don't know for sure how much the scribe got of this treatment. We do know that the person who actually performed the cut really kind of got, uh, uh, had a rough day at the office. Yeah. At this point, the embalmers could start their task free of the stigma of having been the ones to wound the body. Uh, the rest of their work was considered reparative and sacred. So the abdomen would then be emptied and thoroughly cleaned and washed, and the removed viscera would also be washed. And this washing was done uh, via first rinsing the area or the viscera with palm wine and then rinsing it again with an infusion of pounded spices. The cavity was filled with natron, then it was sewn shut. And at this point, the body was also placed in natron for 70 days. There's actually some scholarly debate about whether it was a shorter period, and that could stem in from a change in the type of natron that was used. In earlier embalming, the natron was used in a liquid state. From the Middle Kingdom on though, it seems like a solid natron salt was used, and this would result in a faster desiccation of the body. Yes, yeah, so the the there the other number that you'll sometimes hear is 40 days. So we know it's somewhere in there. Um and there are also a few factors that would change the results of the natron treatment and how long it would take. And that include the quality of the mix uh, of the, the natron, the condition of the body prior to embalming, as you can well imagine, whether the natron had been used before, because it would sometimes be reused and it would get less and less effective with each use. You had to also consider the ratio of natron to body volume and the climatic conditions of the area, obviously, if it's a more humid space. It's going to take longer for the the body to dry out. Yeah. This is basically drying the body out, getting all the water out and that's going to prevent bacteria and things from breaking down the tissue or at least slow it down dramatically. After this two month soak, the temporary stuffing materials would be removed and the body would be washed again. And once the abdomen was thoroughly cleaned, it was refilled with aromatic substances. And this could include cassia, juniper, and myrrh. As well as other things. And they, these substances all smelled nice, but they also preserved the body, uh, and they prevented the abdominal wall from collapsing. And additional materials that could be used to fill the abdominal cavity could be resin, which also worked as a disinfectant. They would use oils, unguents, and perfumes to kind of fill it out and keep it as clean as possible in the afterlife and also keep it from smelling horrible. Yeah. A side note, in case you've always wondered but didn't know, myrrh is a gum resin that comes from a tree, and it smells really sweet. Cassia is a coarse cinnamon bark, which, of course, also has a very sweet smell. And then uh, they would also pour hot resin onto the body in a, a thin layer, and that would serve as a disinfectant. So several different st- steps were being taken to prevent any sort of bacteria, any sort of moisture that could lead to um, additional breakdown of the tissue preservation. From this point, the corpse could have any kind of cosmetic dressing that was going to be done. And this could include dyeing and styling the hair, including adding hair extensions and applying colored pigments to the face. And then it was at this point that the corpse would be wrapped in the linen strips that we have the visual association with of what a mummy looks like. And to adhere these strips to the body, the underside was treated with gum and then specialists, basically people whose only job was working as a bandager, would perform this wrapping. The digits of the hands and the feet would be wrapped individually and then the rest of the body would be wrapped and a red linen shroud would cover the body after the wrapping was finished. And throughout each stage of this process, there would be a lector priest that would read magical texts over the body and protective amulets would be placed at various locations around the neck and limbs, uh, sometimes around the waist. And as well as tucked into the layers of wrapping as they got to the final stages. Once the corpse was fully prepared in this manner, it would go back to the family. And sometime during the two-plus months that the body had been with the embalmers, the family would have acquired a wooden, human-shaped shell that the body would go back into. And it would be put in this box, and then normally, uh, in, again, since this is the highest level, uh, that box would be stored upright in, like, a family sepulchral chamber. So that is... The most perfect process. Yes. Where everything is done with great care and there are many, many steps. Before we move on to the somewhat, perhaps less perfect process, <laughs> would you like to take a moment and talk about our sponsor? That sounds grand. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
1: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year
0: is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. So let's get back to what the maybe families of a little more modest means. Might have done. Yeah. Not uh, the most modest means, but slightly more modest. Mid-range. Yes. This is this is like the mid-grade quality of mummification. Exactly. Uh, and this mid-range treatment of Egypt's dead was, as you might suspect, a bit less involved. They did not take as much time or perform as many steps. So rather than taking the body's organs out, as was the practice and the most expensive option... Instead, what would happen is that embalmers would inject oil of cedar into the body through the anal opening, which would then be sealed. And this body that was now full of oil would be soaked in natron for 70 or 40 days, uh, depending, or somewhere in between. And after this soak was complete, they would drain the oil from the body. They would um, unseal the anal opening, and then the cedar oil will have liquefied the internal organs. And so... Everything would sort of flush out at once. At this point, the body was really depleted down to nothing but the skin and the skeleton. And that's how it would be returned to the deceased's family without any kind of additional treatment. So uh, not so much with the wrapping and the actual mummification, just a, an embalming process that was thorough, but not as involved. And then for the poor... We have an extremely basic level of, it, of embalming. Yeah. So they would cut open the, the body and remove the intestines, but it was pretty quick. It wasn't careful. It wasn't all the intestines were not washed. Were they uh, still stoning the person who made the cut? I would presume because the body was still considered sacred, although I didn't find anything that separated uh, those two instances like that specified only in the highest and most perfect level versus this. But they would flush the abdominal cavity with alcohol, and they would then soak the body in natron for 70 days or less. Uh, but then that was it. So after the natron soak and it came out, they gave it a quick rinse, and then it went back to the family. Uh Or sometimes in the case of a pauper that had no family, the embalmers would bury it. Not so much with the tomb and the no. beautiful everything. Uh, but what we have not talked about, and I'm sure people are going, hey... In fact, I was like, hey, in a moment that we cut out of this podcast earlier. <laughs> why didn't you mention? Why didn't we talk about the organs that came out of the bodies and the jars that they went into, which are another thing that probably if you've been to any kind of mummy display in a museum, you've seen a lot of. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing that I found interesting in my research is that brains were not particularly sacred to the ancient Egyptians. Uh, so in this process, the brain was often cut into smaller pieces to facilitate their removal and pulling it out through the nasal cavity most of the time. Uh, And brain matter was usually discarded. It was not treated with the care of other parts of the body. Well, and and according to the beliefs in this culture, all of your important stuff was in your heart and not your brain. So that kind of makes sense. Um, In 1969, the Egyptian skulls that are part of the Macalester collection at Cambridge University were studied to figure out how the brain was handled in each sample. And the findings support this idea of the brain just not being regarded as important. And there had often been holes drilled into the skulls to help remove brain tissue. And brain tissue often remained inside the skull, suggesting that embalmers were not incredibly thorough and painstaking, uh, at least not as much as they were with other uh, organs. Right. And there uh, isn't actually any information on how the viscera was handled after being removed from the body in the writings of Herodotus and Diodorus, who we've talked about a lot. Uh, but thankfully, archaeology has kind of filled in the blanks. And this is an aspect of the process which actually evolved and changed over time. It wasn't always done the same way. So if you were waiting for the canopic jar talk, here we go. In the late period, which was from the 660s until the 330s BCE, the viscera would be placed into four canopic jars. And the earlier examples of these jars are kind of plain, but later on, they are very ornamental jars, and they represent the sons of Horus. So jars with the human-headed emceti usually held the liver. Then there was Happy, who had a baboon head, and that held the lungs. Duamutef had the head of a jackal and held the stomach. And then the intestines were held by Kabasinoph, which had the head of a falcon. And these are normally placed in the tomb along with the body. And in the Hellenistic period, roughly from the 320s to the 30s BCE, the practice of handling the viscera shifted a little bit. And then organs were normally placed into wooden chests uh, or sometimes set between the body's legs prior to the bandaging process. And in some mummies from this time, the organs have actually been found treated and washed and preserved and then returned to the deceased's abdominal cavity. When Egypt became part of the Roman Empire in 31 BCE, mummification practices shifted again and it became common for bodies to be coated with resin to prevent decay instead of using this longer and more involved process. And during late antiquity, some bodies were simply treated with natron and then they would be dressed in their regular clothes again rather than wrapped in bandages. So they really sort of had cutbacks. Yeah. Kind of got a little less intricate and ceremonial as they went as time progressed. So not everything went into jars, obviously, because you have more than four organs. Yeah. (laughs) Despite the clearing out of the abdomen and the trunk that we mentioned earlier... The heart would be left in the body, and it was believed that it would be weighed in the afterlife as part of the judgment of the dead. And the kidneys were also often left, although we are a little less clear on why that is the case. Uh, in a paper on surgical procedures performed during mummifications that was written by Bob Breyer and Ronald S. Wade, uh, the pair point out that there's no real Middle Egyptian word for kidney. There are some that kind of hint at it, but no specific word. And they suggest that maybe ancient Egyptians weren't entirely clear on this aspect of human anatomy. It's also worth noting that when canopic jars were being used in the late period, there were, as we said, only four, way more than four internal organs are in the human body. So it appears that dissection was never done in Egypt until the late Ptolemaic times. So it makes sense that they may not have had a full picture of the inner workings of a man. So even though... They were going in and removing organs. They had not done sort of an exploratory, Correct. surgical uh, look at the whole human body, which makes sense since cutting into the body was a, a taboo. Right. Uh, and it's also worth noting that the incision that they were using for removing these organs was only about two and a half inches long, really just enough for one of these embalming experts to get their hand in to remove things. So they were really feeling around in the dark. Yeah. Well, and if if you've watched an actual autopsy video or any kind of like uh, human anatomy study video involving uh, an actual body uh-huh. or, you know, if you've actually been in on one of those, it's, it's not as neat and tidy in there. No. As it is depicted when something has been, like, prepared for classroom use or on television or whatever. It's kind of like a big mass of bloody goop in there. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's uh not to make light of it being a human, but it reminds me of the Halloween trick where people take you in the dark room and have you feel things in a bowl that are wet and slimy. And if you think about a lot of those kinds of things in one big bowl and you have to sit yeah. around and go, that's a... I think that's intestine. I mean, it would be very hard to just identify by touch, right? Even if you were very experienced, because there is—it's all moving and squishy. It's not, for the most part, you're not going to find like, you know, clear edges. Yes, this is definitely a liver. The liver, right? Right. Some scholars do argue that the Egyptians had so much experience with the practice of removing organs. That there must have been some more meaningful aspect to the kidney issue, but we don't really know what that is yet. Yeah, there are several theories. Some are very simple, and it's like, well, there's usually too much fatty tissue, and it would have been hard to remove. Others say they didn't even know they were there. But we haven't found any cultural evidence of any import to the kidney, so we, like them, are feeling around in the dark trying to figure out what the scoop was. Suddenly I'm like, cadaver study. That's the word that I was trying to find earlier. <laughs> A mummification appears to have ended for the most part around the time of the Arab conquest of Egypt in the seventh century. And by that time, it's estimated that around seven hundred and thirty million people had been embalmed in ancient Egypt. Yeah, they're considered the first embalmers, uh, and they really—you know—it's a fascinating practice. The the great depths, especially if you're looking at the most perfect practice that they used. Uh, it's a a lot of really intricate steps. And with such reverence for the body. Yeah. It's quite um, it's quite something to think about. Well, and like I know when I learned about this in elementary school or whatever, the focus was kind of, woo, freaky, brains to the nose. But really, it's got a lot in common with normal funeral rituals in the West today. Like it's yeah. still about preserving the body for as long as possible and having a respectful... Uh, form to return to the family in some way, like for a service before it's buried, that kind of thing. Yeah. So they, there's, they paved the way. There's more in common than woe freaky. Uh, yeah. With I, burial cultures in a lot of places. I To me, that's sort of like the, I understand that the woe freaky part is what often gets kids interested in things like this. Uh, yeah, we were super excited about it. Especially when it's kind of an icky topic and, you know, teachers may need for their, their own sort of sanity to build that bridge of like, look at this freaky thing. And it makes it less scary because we, uh, I know certainly in the West and in many other cultures, there's still a lot of taboo about death and talking about the dead and dead bodies specifically uh, that that sort of, I think helps, if we focus on the freaky part, particularly in a learning situation, kind of makes it a little easier for everybody. Yeah. Uh, well, and kids love gross things. Of course. As, as a trend. But it does. It misses out on all of that beautiful nuance and subtlety. And I, prior to, uh, researching this, did not know about the practice of not turning over a woman's body for several days, uh, out of fear that it would be, uh, violated in some way. That was yeah. all new information for me. So there are a lot of these, Things that we don't ever hear about. Yeah, and I think even including in today's episode, I've never heard anything about any kind of different treatment for a, a woman's organs, which are not the same as a man's organs internally. Like, I've never heard any well, uterus, ovary, like what happened with those No, nope. discussed in any way ever. Nope. Uh They certainly, to the best of our knowledge, did not usually end up in a jar, so... There's always more stuff to learn. Who knows? I know. Maybe someone knows and will write us a letter. I and, hope. And tell us some, uh, some cool, obscure thing that we haven't learned you about. If you are an Egyptologist, you should write us for sure. Speaking of letters, I think you have some. I have two. That's awesome. Both kind of short and one made me giggle. Uh, so the first one is from our listener, Stephanie. And she says, I just recently discovered the podcast and I was super excited when I saw an episode about Sarah Edmonds. So really, this is a praise Tracy moment because that was her choice. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, she is an aunt on my mother's side and kind of a point of pride for our family. There is a monument to her in Flint, Michigan, erected in the 1990s. Thank you guys so much for doing a podcast on her. My mom and grandpa were super excited to hear about it. Awesome. Yay. That's so cool. I always love when people write in and they're related to someone that we talk about or Mm -hmm. someone in the story that we talk about. Or recently when the plane was landing and they could see us out the window. I love those. It's, you know, how history stays alive day to day. And the second one is from our listener, Julia. And she says, I'm so happy I recently found your podcast. I live in New York City and my long commute to work on the subway is now a lot more interesting as I listen to your back episodes. I hope you enjoy this discussion of death, Julia. (laughs) Uh, She goes on to say, since you always mention Pinterest at the end of the podcast, I was curious to see what you're both pinning. I plugged Missed in History into the pinner search and got this message. We couldn't find any results for Missed in History, but you might try holidays, corgis, sneakers, or pasta. I'm not sure what holidays, corgis, sneakers, and pasta have to do with the podcast, but perhaps I'll figure it out as I continue to listen. Thank you for the always fascinating topics. I can't wait to see what you two have planned for the new year. It's funny. You should say that. We have actually just moved our Pinterest, so it should be much easier to find. Uh, It was a board under the main Stuff Works" Pinterest, and now we've moved it off to our own individual Pinterest account with lots and lots of boards of our own. So if you search for us now, we should come up and search. And if you just want to go there and check it out, we are at Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. So it's much easier for us to tell other people about also. So, uh, if you would like to find our Pinterest, again, that is Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and on Facebook at a new URL, which is Facebook.com slash Missed in History. Uh, and our email address, that one's still the same. That is at discovery.com If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and do a search for the term embalming, and you will get how embalming works, which does touch on ancient Egypt and the first embalmers. If you'd like to learn almost anything else your brain can conjure, you can do that at our website as well. And that's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation.
0: You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you.
1: The danger they endured.
0: They said my head should be cut off.
1: I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.